Today's Bible reading is taken from Ruth chapter 4, commencing at verse 11. At the city gates, before the elders and witnesses, Boaz has acquired the right, the responsibility of a guardian redeemer to buy the land of Elimelech, Marlon and Kilion from Ruth and to marry Marlon's widow, Ruth. We take it up at verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing, uh, standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bought, bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The genealogy of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadad, Abinadad, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Ruth 4, 11 to 22. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. So Boaz finally got Ruth. Yay! Boaz got his lady. Ruth got her man. Amen? Amen. Uh, gathering team, won't you please come and lead us as we sing our final song, We're All Getting Married in the Morning. Probably a little bit more than that. Right, so there's a title for you, Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Uh, 
Ruth 4, 11 to 22. Now, some of you were around at this time, I am sure. Do you remember that series? For those of you that were alive and kicking somewhere around there, it was the fantastic franchise series called Back to the future. And in each of those, there were three of them, in each of the movies, uh, it, it followed the sort of the swashbuckling adventures of, of someone called Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox, and Doc, who was uh, Christopher Lloyd. And they went back in time, and they went forward in time, and then they landed in the present, and, and they did it in what was known as a DeLorean tra time-traveling automobile. But back in 1985, when the first movie was made, the star of the series, Michael J. Fox, he would never have imagined that he would fight a 30-year battle against Parkinson's, from which he eventually died. In one interview before he died, he said, quote, he felt that death was always banging on his door. Death was always banging on his door. You see, death is banging on our door every single day. But if, if the book of Ruth has taught us anything, it has taught us that we have a secure future because of the harvest resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Ruth has also shown us that although we don't know what the future holds, it is God who holds the future for us. And so even if there are dreadful diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, PSP, cancer, and many others, God is working good in all things, even when we cannot see it. Because faith is confidence in what we hope for and an assurance of what we cannot see. There were three Back to the Future movies. Today is a biblical back to the future. We're going to travel backwards in time. We're going to go forwards in time. We're going to land in the present. But we're not going to do it in a DeLorean sort of time-traveling car. We're going to do it in a biblical time machine called the Bible. So we're going to go back. We're going to go forward. We're going to land. We're going to go forward. We're going to go back. And I want to tell you, you need to strap in. You need to buckle in because this is going to be one swashbuckling adventure as we go back to the future one last time with the book of Ruth. So here's my first heading. We're going to go back to the future with Boaz. Back to the future with Boaz. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Boaz taking Ruth as his wife means that Boaz redeemed Ruth. He willingly and he sacrificially bought her out of the slavery of poverty, and he drew her to himself in a marriage covenant relationship. Boaz is her redeemer. And I just want to say right here for the record, any non-married men here who may have a future wife later, you are not her redeemer. To any married men here, you are not the redeemer of your wife. But as we get into a biblical time machine, we're actually taken back with Boaz. We're taken back in time to the promise of the very first promise of the Redeemer. And we pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As we go back, as God says 
And he speaks to Satan. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God says to Satan, though you have deceived Adam and Eve and you have plunged them into the ruin and slavery of sin, I promise you that there will come a Redeemer who will, who will crush your head. He will redeem my people. He will save them out of the slavery of sin. But then we travel forward again back into Boaz. As we come back, as we go back and we come back into the presence. So what we've got with Boaz redeeming Ruth is Boaz gives us a little picture of what our future Redeemer will be like. As we look at Boaz, he gives us a, a little glimpse. And as Boaz sacrificially and as he willingly redeems both Naomi and Ruth, we get a little taste of what our Redeemer will be. And so our time machine takes us forward, and we land up in a place called Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And it says, in Him, in Christ, we have what? We have, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You see, it is Jesus Christ who rescues us from spiritual bankruptcy and the destitution of sin. He rescues us from the destruction of hell that's banging on the door every single day. And Jesus Christ redeems us into a marriage covenant with himself. Yes, a one flesh union with himself by his spirit. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As we go back to the future with Boaz, it is Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And I ask us one last time this morning that we may glory in our Redeemer. But let's secondly go back to the future with Ruth. So verse 13, Boaz takes Ruth and she became his wife. When he had made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. But as you look at verse 13, we need to travel backwards in the same book. In fact, just to the verse before where we're told this. This is the people speaking to Boaz. They say, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And here's what I want you to see. In verse 13, we, we've got Ruth, and we are being connected back to who? To? To Tamar, who is a Canaanite. So we've got a Ruth who is a Moabite, and we've got Tamar, who is a Canaanite, and that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 38. We'll get there a little bit later. So, but now I want to show you something. As we go back, so here we've got Ruth and we're going back to Tamar, but as we get into the biblical time machine and takes us forward again into the New Testament, I want to show you Ruth 4, 12 and 13 alongside Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to see a couple of things that are rather important. Because as we go back and we go forward and we land up in Matthew chapter 1, we suddenly find that Tamar and Ruth pop up in Matthew chapter 1 alongside a few other women. 
So look at verse 1, right hand side. Have a look at Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy, the line of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see that verse 1. Go down to verse 3 and you'll see the red bits. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was who? Was Tamar. Go down to verse 5. Go down. Da, 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 da. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Who was who? Who was Uriah's wife? That was Bathsheba. So here's what I want you to see. The Redeemer's line stretches back to Abraham in verse 1, stretches forward to David in verse 6, but we notice that there are four women in the line. There is Tamar the Canaanite, verse 3. There is Ruth the Moabite, verse 5. There is Rahab the Canaanite, verse 5. And there is Uriah's wife Bathsheba the Hittite in verse 6. Can you see what's going on? As we time travel back to the future, can you see that the mothers, the mothers of the Messiah were not all Jewish and in fact, the bloodline of Messiah was not purely or particularly Jewish. And here's what you've got to see, because this is what is happening as we go back to the future with Ruth. Can you see that there is no such thing as racial purity, and there's actually no such thing as Jewish purity? Jewish purity, racial purity, is a myth. Can I put it a little bit stronger? It's a complete nonsense. Because if I can put it like this, Jesus was a mixed breed of blood. He was a diluted bloodline redeemer, if you want to put it that way. When it came to the Messiah, the bloodline of Jesus, it was a bit of this, and it was a bit of that, and it was a bit of this, a bit of Hittite, and a bit of Canaanite, and a bit of, and a bit of everything else. So you remember, don't you? You remember when the Pharisees were, were pouting to Jesus how they were sons of Abraham? Remember all that? They were actually pouting about something that never really existed. And here's the other thing. I hope that what you can see here, because this is what the author is doing, it's, it's not just dealing a death blow to racial purity, but it's dealing a death blow to racism in general. Can you see that? If a non, if non-Jewish, Moabite, Hittite, Canaanite woman were mothers of Jesus in terms of bloodline, then racism is a complete what? It's a complete nonsense. Let me give you a definition of racism. Racism is prejudice, discrimination, antagonism by an individual community or institution against a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular racial or ethnic group. Here's what you've got to see. Every human being, including the God-man, Jesus Christ, is a mixed blood, is a mixed or a mixed drink of various bloods. Racial purity, racial superiority, Aryan race stuff is a complete and utter nonsense. There's no such thing as racial superiority when you're a mongrel. That's what we all are. Here we go, Anderson. I'm glad you get it. But let's just take this one step further. When it comes to racism and racial purity and all that stuff, it even gets further obliterated when you see this. This is Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 26. But in Jesus Christ, you are all children of God 
Through what? Through faith. For you were all baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. Here it comes. When you're in Christ, there is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. Let me put it to you this way. The only racial bloodline that you need to be concerned about today is whether you are in the line of Christ which happens by faith in a mixed blood, mongrel, diluted Messiah when it comes to his bloodline who went to the cross to save us from the poverty of our sin. So as we go back to the future with Ruth, we actually go even further ahead. Do you know where it all ends? Can I show you? Have a look at this. Here's where it goes. Into the future. John says, and I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, and no one could count. From every what? Every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. They were all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were all wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. Do you know where it all ends in the future? It ends with every single race united in Christ singing His praise. Back To the future with Ruth, we glory in a mixed blood redeemer. Let's keep going. How about back to the future with Naomi? Now, if you've got your Bible open, you'll notice from verse 14, suddenly the whole shift of the passage from verse 14 to 17 shifts to Naomi. And here's what it says. Let me just read it to you again. As the shift comes to her, the woman said to Naomi from verse 14, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without God in Redeemer. May he be famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Just guess who named the child. Just have a look at verse 7. It's slightly off. Who named the child? The community. I wouldn't, give you, I wouldn't give you a lot of chance to name my children. You must be joking. Forget that. Let's time travel. Let's just time travel back to the future with Naomi. Same book. Remember this? Remember her words in chapter 1, verse 21? She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back. Empty. You see the movement? She's, she's, she was full and she's gone. She's gone away empty, but she's come back. And if you've got your Bible, if you ever look at verse 16, what's the picture now? She's gone away. She was full. She's gone away empty. She's come back. What, as little Obed is now on her knee and, and she's caring for him, what, what, what's, what's the picture? The picture of fullness again, isn't it? She was emptied of her husband. She was emptied of her sons. She was emptied of her daughter-in-law, Orpah. She was emptied of her financial resources. She was having to sell her land because she was so poor and destitute. But now notice, as, as she's back, she's filled up with a godly daughter-in-law. She's filled up with a godly son-in-law. She's filled up with a grandchild. She is filled up by the redemption that Boaz has given her. You see, and as you and I start to time travel with Naomi this morning as we go back and we go forward and we come into the present, 
we actually travel back into our emptiness without Christ. And we travel forward into our fullness in Christ. Let me show it to you. Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the what? From the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, as we look back, as we look back to our life without Christ, it was what? It was so empty, wasn't it? It was so futile. It was so poor. It was so impoverished. In fact, it was so meaningless. When we look back to our time without Christ, we, we just followed the ways of this world and we just followed the, the instincts, the flesh, the natural instincts of our flesh. We lived for pleasure and ourselves. We, we sowed the wind of sin and we reaped the whirlwind of hell banging on our door every single day. It was so empty. It was nothing. And yet, in John 1.16, out of his fullness, out of his fullness, we've all received what? Grace in place of grace already given. And then in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, and in Christ you have been brought to what? To fullness. Do you see it? You see, oh, Christ, you're empty. In Christ, you're so full. And when we start to understand that, we can sing with and, and say with King David in Psalm 23. He said this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I wonder how you feel this morning. You may really have come in here this morning and you're feeling pretty empty. You might be feeling a pretty empty relationship-wise. You might be feeling empty financially. You might be feeling empty health-wise. You might be feeling empty energy-wise. You might be feeling pretty empty this morning. But do you realize how full you are in Christ? Here's one of my favorite, favorite portions of Scripture. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, We are genuine, but we're regarded as impostors. We're known, yet regarded as unknown. We're dying, and yet we live on. We're beaten, yet not killed. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're poor, yet making, yet making many rich. Having earthly nothing, but we possess everything. I want to say to you this morning, Christian, you might not have very much. Earthly-wise, you actually might have deadly, little, maybe even consider it nothing. Yet in Christ, you possess everything. Christian, you are so, so full here this morning in Christ. Though earthly-wise, you might be feeling pretty empty. And I want to say to you this morning that if you are not a Christian, you might be sitting here thinking that you're full. You feel quite full. But actually you're empty. Without Christ, you are empty. And the invitation of Scripture to you is to come. To come 
and let him fill you up to overflowing with the fullness of his mercy, the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his kindness, the fullness of his salvation, the fullness of his redemption. In a few minutes' time, we're going to sing a song and hear some of the words from that song. Come, all you sinners. Come find his mercy. Come to the table. He will satisfy. Taste of his goodness and find what you're looking for. He says, we go back to the future with Naomi. We rejoice in the fullness of our Redeemer. Let's go to number four. We go back to the future with Israel. And you'll notice that if, you, if you've got your Bible, you'll notice that the very next section from verse 18, it goes into a genealogy. And I'm gonna, I think I'm going to bring it up on the screen for you. Uh, it ran from verse 18 to 22. We suddenly move into this genealogy, and you'll notice that it back. It goes back to Perez in verse 18, and we'll get to him. And notice that it goes forward where, and it lands in verse 22 to Jesse, the father of David. So let me read it. So this is the family line of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of. Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. The time travel takes us back, back to around about Genesis 38 and even 49 with, with Perez. Perez was the son of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of, of, of Jacob, and it was through the line of Judah that the Messiah would come. Right? You got that? But the, but the mother of Perez was who? Was Tamar. And what was the relationship of Tamar to Judah? It was the daughter-in-law. You get the scandal. Okay? We'll come back to that in a moment. Have you realized, do you know that every family's got a little bit of scandal in it? Have you noticed that? I'm going to tell you a little bit about my family scandal, and you can do some maths. I have a half-sister in England. My wife is about to go and visit her starting tomorrow. No scandal in having a half-sister. That's on my father's side. But here's the scandal. In terms of birth dates, my half-sister and me are only six months apart. You do the maths? It means that my mother and the mother of my half-sister were pregnant by the same guy at the same time. Now, let me just say to you, that has caused an enormous generational scandal through the Collier clan, and no one has ever forgiven anybody for about 20,000 generations. Chance, chance is why I landed up in South Africa and landed up in Australia. Anyway, more on that. Here's the scandal. Judah had two sons, one named Ur. This is going time-traveling back to Genesis 38. Ur, Ur and Onan were sons of Judah. Ur was married to a Canaanite by the name of Tamar. Foolish. Ur was a wicked man, so the Lord put him to death. Onan had to be the redeemer of Tamar. But he was wicked. You can see what he did. And the Lord put him to death. So Judah has got a third son named Selah, says to, to Tamar, well, Tamar, you need to wait. I'll wait till my third son grows up, and then he can redeem you, and so on and so on. 
But unfortunately, Judah had no intention of keeping his promise because he thought if Selah grew up, God might kill him as well. Tamer gets hold of this deal, dresses up like a prostitute, stands on the side of the road as Judah's walking by, flicks her eyes, he, whatever, and the next thing you know, that Perez pops out. Perez is the son born of scandal. And where does he land up? <laughs> In the line of Christ. Oh, my goodness. Can I just ask you after over tea and coffee just now, would you please share your family scandals with one another? Please. Or come and share one with me. I'm feeling quite vulnerable now. Um, here's the point. Now, here's the point. As we travel back backwards and forwards in time travel with Israel, here's the point. The line of Messiah is not just filled up with non-Jews, not just filled up with half-breeds and mongrels and licorice, all sorts, but the line is filled up with some serious scandal and sinners. Let me put it this way. Judah, he was about as feral as you can get. And David in verse 22, well, he wasn't exactly snow white either, was he? He was an adulterer, lied, deceitful, accomplice to murder. His forced adultery with Uriah Bathsheba gives birth to Solomon, and Solomon lands up in the line, and he wasn't exactly snow white either. Do you get it? Back to the future with Israel, God chooses a very sinful nation, full of very sinful people, full of very sinful scandals, to bring about a sinless Messiah in order to save a very sinful people. So here's the thing. Do you know what you inherited from your forefathers? Do you know what you inherited from your ancestors? You didn't just inherit their mixed blood. You didn't just inherit their unclean blood. But you also inherited their sinful blood as well. Seems like such an obvious thing to say. But the sinful line shows that the Messiah came for a feral, sinful people. And the point of such a sinful line is to say to us this morning, is that there is no one who is beyond redemption because of their sin. No one. So many people, so many people are gripped. They are gripped. They're in a vice grip of shame and, 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 and guilt of past sins. So many people turn around and say, I can, I can never be forgiven, and how could God forgive me? And, and, and you might be one of those people sitting here right here this morning. You might know someone just like that, so gripped by, by sin and shame of the past, but no one is beyond redemption. When you have a look at this line, how scandalous is this line? How sinful is this line? Jesus came for ferals like Judah, and he came for ferals like prostitutes like Rahab, and he came for ferals like David, and he came for the ferals like that thief on the cross that was hanging next to Jesus. And Jesus came for ferals like that self-righteous, bigoted, violent, blaspheming Jew like the Apostle Paul, and he came for a feral like you and me. Here's a wonderful quote from the now dead, Timothy Keller. Because death was banging on his door. He died recently. And here's a quote from him. He says, the gospel is this. 
We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. That's what the line teaches you. And do you know all that sinners need to do? Do you know all that sinners need to do? Is call on the one who willingly and sacrificially redeemed their lives at the cross, covering all their sin, covering all their shame, covering all their guilt. As that song says that we're going to sing in just a moment, bring all your failures, bring your addictions, come lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting there with open arms. See his open arms. Back to the future with Israel, we glory in a sinless Redeemer for a very, very sinful people. But there's one more. We go back to the future with God. As we look at it one last time, as we go back over the Jewish line from Perez in verse 18, and we land forward in, in, in verse 22 with David. It takes us forward again. We time travel one last time because the genealogy is summarized and finishes in Matthew 1.17 where it says thus, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the Babylon or to the exile and then 14 from the exile to the Messiah who is Christ that was born. And you cast your eye back and you cast your eye forward and you land in the present, what you discover is that throughout all the ages, God has been what? Faithful to his promises. In fact, it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? We go all the way back to Judah, Genesis 38. And we go all the way forward to Christ born of Mary in Matthew chapter 1, 17. Despite all the sin, despite all the scandal, despite all the wiggles and the woggles, God has been faithful to bring about his what? His Redeemer. You see, Paul puts it like this in 2 Timothy 2. He says, if we are faithless, which we are, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. As we go back, as we go forward, as we land in the present with God, here's the issue. If God has been faithful through all generations, through all the sin and all the scandal of everything, of every generation, if God has been faithful to bring about His Redeemer, will God not be faithful to all the promises that He has given us? Surely, surely if He brought Christ in fulfillment of the line, surely He will be faithful. Surely? How is this for one of the most incredible verses in all of Scripture? When Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, he, he, he did not spare, that's the fulfillment of the promise, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us what? All things. 
if God has always been faithful and is faithful, he will continue to be faithful. So think about Naomi for a moment. What did she discover? When she was in the famine season of her life, what did she discover? God was was faithful. You in a bit of a famine season this morning? You feeling like the locusts have taken some of it? Maybe you can't see the unseen hand of God. God is faithful in the famine. He's faithful in the seasons when it's not going that well, earthy-wise. What did Ruth discover? What did a poor, destitute, Moabite widow who came under the wingspan, under the refuge of Yahweh, what did she discover? That God was faithful. That Yahweh could be trusted. And he made promises of provision and protection. And even marriage. I'm going to give you three promises. I'm going to show them to you. And all, all I want you to do is just, I'm not going to comment on them. I just want them to like, wish I could sort of fall on you a little bit like rain this morning. Just, it's like, I was coaching soccer yesterday and I got drenched in the rain. I want the, these are the type of promises that are going to drench you. You've got to go home soggy. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, body, and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is what? Faithful. Do you think you're going to arrive there? Do you think so? Do you think you're going to get there? Well, God will get you there. How about this one? But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. How about this one? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is what? Faithful. Has God made you promises of protection? Has he made you promises of provision? Has he made you promises of, sustain, of sustaining? Has he made you promises of hope? Is he going to deliver? He's faithful. In fact, there's a beautiful picture in Psalm, ah, I think I missed it, but in Psalm 89.8 where it says, listen to this, Psalm 89.8, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty, who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and faithfulness surrounds you. How's that? So let me wrap up this way. One, back to the future with Boaz, we glory now in our Redeemer. Back to the future with Ruth, we glory now in our racially diverse Redeemer. Back to the future with Naomi, we glory now in the fullness of our Redeemer, which is still to come. It's a now, but it's a not yet. Back to the future with Israel, we glory in a sinless Redeemer for a sinful people. And as we go back to the future with God, we glory now 
in our faithful witness. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand and I want us to sing a song that sort of just will bring at least some of this together and we're just going to respond in praise and thanks and glory to our Redeemer. But then I want to close the service in a time of prayer where I will lead you as we go back to the future with Ruth. Let's stand together and... uh, team.